Welcome back to Extra Butter. I am your host, Josh Friedman, along with my trusted co-hosts, Sam Mangold-Lennett, a.k.a. Lenny, as well as Ezra. Ezra, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Glad to be here. Glad to be back. This is our second episode. Thanks for everyone who turned into episode one. As a reminder, you can give us a follow on Twitter at extra underscore butter pod. And Many are saying it was the most popular first episode in podcast history. That's a pretty common saying. And then we will also be having a Facebook page coming up shortly. I also want to remind you, we are available everywhere podcasts are found. Spotify, Google Podcasts, maybe Apple in the future. We'll see. So uh, Look up extra to- butter in the search bar and you'll find them. Yep. Uh, and so let's just hop right into it. Uh, we've got a kind of neo-Western episode today. We're going to be talking about The Power of the Dog, new movie 2021, as well as our throwback review, which will be No Country for Old Men. But before we hop into it, Ezra, what have you been watching recently? So uh, this was my first sem- or first week of classes, so Nerd. it was a little hard to watch movies. My usual pace, so besides the two that we're going to discuss in this episode, the only other film I watched was a documentary called Conan O'Brien Won't Stop which was an interesting look at uh, the period of his life after he got fired from NBC, but before he started his TBS talk show. It was just an interesting look into like how his mind works, what he does in his downtime. And it's also one of those great behind the scene things where it shows how like a comedy tour comes together. So as a fan of comedy, stand up, that kind of stuff, I found it really interesting. It's on Amazon Prime if anyone wants to check it out. Cool. Uh, how about you, Lenny? Have you seen anything recently? Yeah, so uh, last night I saw The King's Man, uh, the prequel to the Kingsman movies. Um, Really bad, really bang up job. Um, Just utter piece of garbage. Do not recommend it. Zero bars of butter out of five bars of butter. Well, I don't know if you should say zero. That's pretty extreme. Find half a bar of butter because I did enjoy enjoy the comically bad iteration of Lenin they had. And Rasputin was kind of funny. So I'll give him half a bar of butter. Yeah, How does it compare to the second Kingsman? Because I Golden also found Circle, that one which was pretty very bad, bad as well. Um, so the first Kingsman was fantastic. Uh, the second one was, it was fine. It was it entertaining. Was bad. No, it was bad. No, I mean, I enjoyed it. There were some redeeming parts of it. I'd, I'd say it's a good movie, but not, I'd rather, I'd say it's redeemable. You can find things to like in it, but it's not all that great a piece of cinema. This was even worse than that. Um, I mean, if you if you are looking for time to kill, go see it, I guess. Other than that, don't waste your time or money. Um, I also saw Encanto for the second time, um, which is the Disney movie um, about the Colombian family who has a magic house uh, and or magic powers. Uh, would recommend it a lot. Uh, very fun movie. The soundtrack's great. Uh, it was uh, written by Lin-Manuel Miranda, who I'm pretty sure Disney just keeps in a closet these days and has them churn out smash hit soundtracks one after another um so yeah go see that it's still in theaters um it might be on disney plus it, by the time it is on disney plus okay 
Um, um, one thing I'd recommend, actually, speaking of Encanto, is that the New York Times did an article on Lin-Manuel Miranda's writing process. And it talks about how he wrote uh, We Don't Talk About Bruno, which I think is the best song from the movie. Many are saying that, yeah. It's, it's very popular. In basically just a few minutes, he just sat down on a piano, started banging it out, and it came into the song. So if you've seen the Beatles documentary. On I'm still working Plus, my way through it. Get back. Well, in the first episode, there's a great scene with Paul McCartney writing songs, and mm-hmm. people say it's it's similar to that, not comparing them as skill levels, but it's just interesting to look at that artistic process. Going back, Lenny, to The Kingsman, which you said you just watched, director Matthew Vaughn, is he just do Kingsman movies now? Because his last three movies were The Kingsman, Kingsman, The Golden Circle, and Kingsman, The Secret Service. Before that, he did, I think, X-Men First Class, which eh, was yeah. okay. Kick-Ass was okay. But uh, underrated movie, Stardust. Have you guys seen Stardust? I That's a great film. I really like Stardust. And then even more underrated, 2004's Layer Cake, uh, Matthew Vaughn's first feature film with Daniel Craig. That's actually the role that got Daniel Craig on the radar to play Bond. That's a really good movie. I think that's streaming now on Netflix. Highly recommend. That's a four and a half stick of butter movie for me. I just watched it. And yeah, it's on Netflix. It's incredible. It was my second time. I think I enjoyed it even more the second time watching it. Len, have you seen those films? I have not. But to uh, to address your question, um, I saw like a behind the scenes, like uh, newbie interview with uh, Vaughn. And he mentioned that he is a really big fan of uh, the Millerverse, which is a independent comic line uh, of the guy who wrote the Kingsman uh, comic series. Um, it's not a like frequently published one. It's kind of like an off on whenever he has something to say. Um, and considering and Kick-Ass is also written by the same guy. Um, so he might just be kind of, trying to hit that niche, trying to adapt that guy's various works. Um, I don't really know what he has planned for the future, but it seems like he's kind of found his own little niche in that regard. Gotcha. So should we hop right into today's review, which again is 2021's The Power of the Dog? Yeah, let's get to it. Okay, so for those who haven't seen the movie yet, there will be spoilers because this is a movie you just kind of have to talk about spoilers for, I guess. Get out now if you don't want spoilers. If you haven't seen the film yet, this is a spoiler review. So to summarize the movie, uh, it's actually kind of hard to summarize this plot, but essentially you've got Benedict Cumberbatch playing Phil Burbank, a domineering rancher, an older brother of Jesse Plemons' character when Plemons' character marries Ruth Rose Gordon, excuse me, played by the great Kirsten Dunst. Uh, Phil initially torments Rose and her wayward son, Peter, played by Cody Smith-McPhee. And as tensions rise, Phil appears to take Peter under his wing by teaching him the way of the ranch, but with consequences. Directed by Jane Campion, who's done a number of other movies, none of which I have seen. Uh, What did you guys think of the movie, Len? So I thought it was very, you know, it's a a Western, so it's gritty. They don't hold back. You know, there's a pretty uh, gruesome scene where Cumberbatch uh, is, you know, doing some ranch hand stuff won't get too graphic for the listeners at home um but what really stood out to this movie for me was how cumberbatch and plemons can really just disappear into whatever role they're given um you know i didn't know anything about this movie before we agreed to watch it um i tried to stay blind when i turned it on um but when cumberbatch came on i didn't even realize it was him at first just because of how 
he just dissolves into whatever role he's playing. He, it's amazing. One of the best actors of our lifetimes. Uh, Plemons, you know, he's kind of a, he's a goofy looking dude, but similarly, every single role I've seen him in, in the past, like five years, extremely just, underappreciated actor, Jesse, very Plemons. much. So, um, no, I didn't really care for him in the jungle cruise, but that's, you know, an outlier, I suppose, but he was still good in that role. The movie just sucked. Um, so yeah, you know, I thought it was very well directed. Um, you know, like you said, the plot was kind of, it wasn't, if this, you know, it's, it's a critically acclaimed film, but if it wins any praise, I don't think it will necessarily be on the merits of the plot, more so how the story was told and the acting therein. Yeah, I think Benedict Cumberbatch is probably a shoe in to get nominated for Best right. Actor. There's if he does, not other, be shocked. There's some other pretty strong performances this year as well, but we'll talk about that when we do our Oscars preview. Right. Ezra, what did you think? Give us your general overview before we start talking about the ending of the film. Right, so... I really enjoyed this film. Um, it's hard not to. I think, you know, cinema can be broken into different aspects. This is like a movie I would classify as like art almost. Not to be pretentious about it, but it's one of those movies where after it was finished, I just couldn't stop thinking about it. Oh, changed. Going over like what had happened and reading like Reddit posts or like uh, internet reviews to like, piece out the symbolism in it um i thought it was a very strong film like uh, lenny said the performances are great benedict cumberbatch is a real standout in this but i think all the main character or main cast members all did really well it's nice to see uh kirsten dunst getting more acclaim because i know she got a lot of hate as because she was a child actor who then was in the spider-man movies uh those sam raimi trilogy and she got a lot of hate from that because her character wasn't very likable in those but she was in, you know, one of the seasons of Fargo, the TV show. Isn't um, she married to Jesse Plemons in that and in real life? I think they're partners. Yeah, that, that's I true. Think, yes, I think they're married. Um, they're becoming the new Paul Dano and Zoe Kazan, who are also a married couple who often appear in things together, um, who are also very strong actors. Many um, are saying that they're Kanye and Kim. <laughs> well, they're they're broken up, Len. I'm sorry to break it to you this way. Um, but without getting into uh, too much plot aspects, I really enjoyed this film. Uh, my initial reaction was mixed, but after I thought about it for a while and I rewatched some scenes, I realized I just didn't grasp some of the aspects. And so I enjoyed it even more now after a second viewing. Yeah, I also really enjoyed the film. I thought it had, it, I, I would agree with Ezra. I think it didn't all land for me until I kind of thought about it after. And I think we get into some spoilers now. Yeah. All means. Okay. So if you're listening at home, turn this part off if you have not seen the film. Or, you know, don't turn it off necessarily. Just fast forward like two or three minutes. Yeah. Or just watch the movie and come back. That too, so yeah. in the movie, we have Phil who's taken Peter, the son of Kirsten Dunst's character, under his wing. And we kind of are a little, a little bit concerned, I'd guess you'd say, given how... He has treated Peter in the past uh, and they kind of are bonding. And at one point we find that Phil is making him a lasso out of cowhide. And Peter sees a cow with a disease. What's the disease? I don't know. It's anthrax. 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 Yeah. And he ends up giving that cowhide to Phil and killing Phil. Uh, what did you guys think? Did you guys see that coming? 
At what point did you think Peter had it in him to kill Phil? What do you think his motivation was? Where did you guys come out on that? So I'll, I'll start on this one. Is So I think the first time you realize that Peter might be more capable than you think he is, is when he has captured the rabbit. Uh, I think that's about halfway through the film. And the maid who's played by Thomason McKenzie, who is a way too big actress to be in a kind of maid number two role. But anyway, she goes to feed the rabbit and he has dissected it. And that's when you start to realize maybe he's a little off. And there's another part later in the film where he's talking to Phil about his father. And he uh, says that his father was worried he wasn't kind enough. And so that's also a little hint that maybe he's not quite what he seems. Um, when he decides to take Phil's life, it's after Rose, uh, Kirsten Dunst's character, has sold his hides. And he's freaking out about it. And so actually, it's one of those things where I didn't remember until I re-watched some scenes is that the very beginning of the film has narration from Peter's character saying he would do anything to protect his mother. Mm-hmm. And, and, so, and his mother is basically driven to alcoholism and is really kind of going downhill right. due to the torment that Phil puts on her. There's so, a good redemption at the end of it, though. Uh-huh. Yeah, and at the end, we do see that uh, Rose and George, who's Clemens's character, are a lot happier with uh, Phil gone. So I guess in the end it did work. But I, I would also agree that when he dissects the rabbit, also I recall there was a time in the film when Peter and Phil are out hunting and they trap an animal. I don't recall what it was. It's a rabbit as well. Oh, it's a rabbit as well. And Not Phil, a very bunny-friendly movie. No. And Phil tells Peter, like, you have to kill it. And he doesn't hesitate. He snaps its neck in its hand. So that's another part where you know that maybe Peter has this dark side to him. And it's also, it took me a second to realize at the end of the film that it was Phil, or it was Peter, excuse me, a lot of names that start with P in this film, I guess, uh, that he had intentionally seen this animal, the cow with anthrax, and used its hide to kill Phil. So that that also took me a second to grasp. Lenny, where did you come out on that? You're You're kind of the leader of the bunny the big bunny industry not sure if i'd phrase it like that sounds like i'm big, a big rabbit got to you yeah big rabbit got me um no i think you guys hit the nail on the head uh, i don't want to sound redundant and waste time but there's definitely a lot more to peter than meets the eye and it's i think it's we're led there very tastefully and and uh like Isaac said artfully um you know it's a classic tale of resentment it's he deeply resents the torment that is going to be placed upon his mother. He resents the role that uh, Phil is playing in his life. Um, this all in all, I think it's very ominous. It's very well done. It, it does it in a way that kind of reminds you of people. Um, you know, maybe I'm just a sociopath, but I think everyone can kind of see themselves in that role. And they also probably know somebody similar to that. It's a very realistic impulse, a very well-written character all around. Yeah, I, I think one thing that might be interesting to talk about is while getting into a little bit of spoilers is Benedict Cumberbatch's performance because I think it's very layered in this because you're given little hints throughout that he is not what he appears to be which is, I, which is to say like a rough and ready cow hand is they mentioned a brief throwaway line that he graduated from Yale with a degree in classics. He comes from this extreme wealth he, when he talks about his mentor, uh, Henry 
Bronco, it, can you Bronco remind Henry, me? Bronco Henry. Bronco Henry. He talks about that he was actually Peter's age when he learned how to do all these things, um, like ride and uh, work on the ranch and stuff. And you can tell that they come from a different world because of the way Jesse Plemons' character acts, where he's much more of a aristocratic, aristocratic farmhand. He owns the farm, but he's not deeply involved with the day-to-day running. And so I think there's different layers that Benedict Cumberbatch really brings together with this. Um, one thing people talk about is he's got kind of, you know, an interesting accent, Benedict Cumberbatch, I think really works in this role because it's hard to picture what he's exactly trying to copy. Some people say it's a Midwestern. Some people say it's a Mid-Atlantic. Some people for this are saying it's a Montana accent. But I think it kind of works that it's kind of ambiguous what region his accent is from because he has so much layers to him. You don't really know what's going on. To your point, uh, how you know there's a lot going on with his character and his backstory, it, it kind of tells a, an age-old tale of you know, what is the classic man supposed to be. You know, he he's wealthy, he has a pristine education, he's learned, but he prefers to live the life of a rugged ranch hand. He doesn't he rejects the aristocratic preferences of his brother and possibly what what his inheritance inheritance is for this rough and tumble lifestyle. Um, so it's a very fascinating juxtaposition. Well, it's it's interesting to think about too, is has he rejected it because it's hinted at, never explicitly stated, but it is hinted at that he is gay. And so I wonder if the reason he is trying to embrace these ones would say like ultra masculine roles is because he uh, is afraid of rejection for who he is. So actually going on that, I read. And I think that's a reason. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, Ezra. uh, Well, just real quick. I think I, I read online an interesting take is there's a scene where Peter is among all the farmhands and he walks through them and they're all like yelling uh, anti-gay slurs at him and mocking him, but he completely ignores them to go look at a bird's nest. And it's at that moment that Phil decides to take Peter under his wing. Mm-hmm. And so some people are saying, you know, of course it's just because he wants to mess with Rose, Peter's mother, but some are saying that it's a Phil saw a strength he didn't realize Peter had by able to ignore the other farmhands. And maybe that's a strength he wished he had in himself deep down. So that's why he takes Peter under his wing as well. I think that makes a lot of sense. Interesting. Yeah. So going to the film's title, uh, Lenny is the resident uh, New Testament guy here. I don't know. Maybe you could explain this. My thing was, I thought the film's title, which is briefly shown towards the end, I know it's taken from uh, the book of Psalms, chapter 22, verse 20, save my soul from the sword and my darling from the power of the dog. In the original Hebrew, my darling indicated my only as in uh, solitary and cherished. The dogs are the tormentors of King David. Centuries later, authors of the gospel noted that it describes circumstances similar to the crucifixion of Jesus, suggesting prophecy. Thus, the title is a subtle spoiler as to the final outcome of the film, as well as the character's motivation. Uh, Psalm 22, the Psalm of the cross is written as Jesus's plea to God while he was dying on the cross and begins with the much more well-known verse, my God, my God, why has, why hast thou forsaken me? I don't know, Lenny, you're the, the, uh, one here I was hoping could explain this to me because as a simpleton. Uh, like myself, I didn't really understand the, the biblical reference, more of an Old Testament guy myself. So do you have any takes on this? Um, 
I mean, not particularly, you know, it's, it's, a, it's part of a funeral, right. Um, and whatever denomination they're rever, uh, a part of, you know, it's, it's deliver my soul. You know, it's, it's referring to the passage of life into the next. Um, I'm not so sure what the symbolism is of the power of the dog aspect. Uh, like you said, the, the Hebrew translation refers to the tormentors of King David. So it could refer to, you know, being dogged and, in life and being able to move on from that, like the power of being dogged really drags down the human experience, one might say. Um, but I'm not necessarily a theologian, so I don't know the exact nuance behind this uh, psalm. Gotcha. Well, according to Screen Rant, it refers to Phil's ability to prey on others' inadequacies and insecurities, thus making them question their value and feel like worms. That is the dog's, quote, power. Uh, which makes makes sense sense, but i don't really know what it means uh so any any other final thoughts on this movie i think i ranked it as my fourth best movie of 2021 of course my illustrious rankings will come out prior to the oscars right now i've seen 32 movies released in 2021 this was good for fourth uh kind of a down year for movies i don't think there's anything that stood out a ton to me but uh where would you guys rank this film for me this is a, a four stick film I thought it was excellent. The acting really carried it. I don't know if it had enough to get the, the, the four and a half stick ranking, which for me are the elite films. Uh, and we'll talk about what it takes to get there actually with our next movie, our throwback review of No Country for Old Men. But for me, I gave this four sticks. Highly recommend checking it out. So a so, uh, quick question. Yeah. If, if it's in your top five for the year, why, why, would you, what, why would it not be elite? I mean, I don't rank... I don't necessarily have to give a movie just because I don't rank it on a sliding scale by year. For me, it's just all times. So I didn't give any movie that came out this year over four sticks. The closest for me was The Green Knight, which I might rewatch it and elevate to four and a half because I really like that film. But for me, I don't think there was a standout movie this year that got to that four and a half stick mark. I think last year, Maybe I did give a movie four and a half sticks, but for me, that's a pretty high level to get to. I'll check my rankings right now. While why don't you guys go into what you thought? Actually, you know, last year, I think I gave my highest ranking movie, which was another round, the uh, Thomas Vinterberg movie starring Mads Mikkelsen. For me, that was a four and a half stick movie. So why don't you guys go ahead with your rankings? Go ahead, Zra. Or with your, your rating. Oh, um, uh, okay. So, uh, yeah, Lenny, if you don't mind. Yeah, I got you. Um, I'd say I'd probably agree with you with four sticks. Um, you know, even just the, the acting in and of itself was enough to shoot this up to three sticks, but there was something very special about the way it was shot. Uh, the cinematography was elite. Uh, the directing was good. Um, I'm going to go four. Okay. Ezra? Yeah, I would go four as well. Really? Um, I saw you gave a three and a half on Letterbox, upping your, your butter rating. Okay. Well, it's interesting. So I did give it three and a half after right after I watched it because I usually rank on a gut feeling as soon as I finished. But like I said, I went through and I really thought about it. And so I don't know if it appears on my Letterbox, but I actually went back and re-ranked it a four. Interesting. Um, because it's one of those films. Uh, the only other film I can think of recently that really like made me like I just kept thinking about it was I'm thinking of ending things, which another, I, I wouldn't necessarily Jesse say Clements is like movie. a great film, 
but it's just a film that stays with me, which I think is a powerful thing because a lot of films I'll watch, enjoy, and then I remember nothing and I'd never think about it again. Um, but yeah, anyway, uh, yeah, four sticks of butter for me uh, after a reevaluation, I think it was really strong. It's definitely top five films I've seen this year or not this year, but that came out in 2021. Uh, definitely recommend uh, for other people to watch it. I just will say it, the strength is the acting and the atmosphere, the tension of the film. If you're looking for a film with a lot of plot and a lot of stuff happening, this is not the film. But I think it's a very, it's a good film to watch. And I think people will enjoy it if they come in with uh, limited expectations. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. So moving on, I think we're going to do segment number one. We're doing it's two segment Tuesday today, even though it is, you know, you're probably listening to this when it drops Sunday morning. Uh, so segment one, we're going to talk about some of our worst movies of 2021. I know we did our favorite movies last week, so it only makes sense. We'll do our worst. Uh, Ezra, you want to go first for this one? Sure. Should we do like um, a little, do we have like a, an opening we want to play or a sponsor? Worst movies of 2021 presented by Cinemark. Uh, Cinemark. Cinemark. Yep. Classic. Thanks for sponsor being our Cinemark. sponsor. Yeah, Cinemark. Thank you. Cinemark um, is one of the few chain movie theaters that I still know serves Coca-Cola products. So big ups to them. Sounds good. Yes. The worst um, movies presented by Cinemark. Yes, thank you for that intro, Josh. Uh, thanks, Cinemark, for producing this segment for us. Um, like I said in our last episode, I haven't watched a ton of films that came out in 2021. So looking at my list, the film I gave the worst rating to that I watched this year was a movie called A Castle for Christmas, which stars Brooke Shields and Carrie Elwes. At, uh, Brooke Shields is a author, a famous author who has killed off her main character, so her fans hate her. And she has decided to buy a castle in Scotland that is run by a duke pretending to be a handyman, played by Carrie Elwes. Um, it was fine. I watched it with my family because even though we're Jewish, we like watching cheesy Christmas movies. Um, I will say the worst movie I watched this year that didn't come out in 2021, but it's just the worst movie I saw this year was Blair Witch Project. The I remake? watched it because I watched it because you know it's a famous movie in cinema history. Are you talking about I, the original? Yeah, I'm talking about the original from the late 90s, and I understand why it's important. But I why is it important? Hated this film. It's seen as a game changer in some of the low or uh, budget horror films that really took off, and it's also isn't it one of the first found footage movies? Yeah, it's yeah, it's one of the it popularized the found footage uh, format. Without Blair Witch, there's no paranormal activity, right? And yeah, I think maybe the renaissance we have now of really good horror films that's happened in the last five years maybe is thanks to Blair Witch Project because Blair Witch Project showed studios that you can make a lot of money off very limited horror movie budgets, which then led to really trashy, cheap horror films. But the budget has remained small. And so studios are now producing really good horror films on small budgets. So just saying. What, what good horror films are, are you referring to? Because it seems like every new horror film is just, <clears throat> oh no, Satan, again. Well, I think films like It Follows... Love hereditary it. Is good. I'll give you hereditary, hereditary. midsummer. It, exactly. It comes um, at night. 
is Midsommar considered horror? I, I, Midsummer I, is definitely a horror movie. I, I just thought of it, it as like a yeah, no, yeah. I just always thought of it more as psychological thriller, not so much horror. Well, psychological think... thrillers could be classified as horror. It is horror. Horror is not just like jump scares and gore. I think those atmosphere horror films are better anyway. That's so fair. I definitely classify that. Midsummer as horror. I'll give and you to, that. to go back to Ezra's point, I do want to say uh, the film cost $60,000 to make and made $248 million. So Oof. for every dollar spent, they grossed $10,931. Yeah, that's, so that's the kind of life good, I want to have. Impressive. Pretty good ROI. I want to put in $60,000 worth of effort and make $200 million. Sounds good. Well, maybe start with putting in some more effort into this podcast, Len. Sir, I am the only one with a microphone. For those of you listening at home, I'm, I'm pointing to my microphone, as is Ezra. Okay, in the last episode, I was the only one with a microphone. No, I had one the last episode, too. Remember, it wasn't working for a little bit, and then we got it working. That, that remains to be seen. Anyway, so for me, the worst movies of 2021 included Silk Road. I don't think either of you guys have seen Silk Road. No. But it was really bad. It was cheesy. The writing was clunky. It was like filled with like early 2000s cliches. That just did not hit. Uh, I would highly recommend skipping Silk Road. Um, maybe not the worst, but one of the most disappointing was Many Saints of Newark. Oh, yeah, that was such a letdown. As big Sopranos guys, I know Lenny and I were very much looking forward to this movie. And frankly, it was a, a colossal disappointment. I thought it added basically nothing to any of the characters in the it was show. promoted it was promoted as like the tony soprano origin, origin story, story. And, and in reality it was about dickie moltisanti and he right. really wasn't that great of a character michael gandolfini was on screen for all of like 10 minutes it just ugh, and i thought he hours. was good by the way i thought he was good yeah, he, he was he was very good in the role just grotesquely underutilized yeah they also butchered silvio Oh my and God. Pauly. That was tough to watch. That was awful. So that was a big disappointment for me. I would say Fast and Furious 9, also a pretty big disappointment. I think they tried to get oh a little God. too meta. It was too long. I mean, love they went fa- to space. I love F9. Really? F9 was so much fun. Like, it's objectively bad. It might well, yeah, be fun, but that's why but it's objectively fun. It's not good. I don't think anybody goes to see a Fast and the Furious movie expecting good cinema. You go for brain candy. Well, I think F five was actually pretty good. Uh, the first, like the first Fast and the Furious, was actually like a interesting film. You know, Other it was supposed that, to be basically fun. a remake of Point Break, but with cars. Fascinating. So, and then finally, uh, I thought Space Jam was pretty underwhelming as well. I thought it had some moments actually, and it was kind of cool to see some Warner Brother properties in the background, like when they're having the basketball game, and you see the Droogs from A Clockwork Orange and the Night King from Game of Thrones. That that was that kind of cracked me up, but overall, it was, it was not good. Uh, Lenny, what were your bottom movies of the year? I really agree with you on Space Jam. Um, it was absolutely horrible. Um, I, I really resent movies that just advertise their own other like studios advertise their own IP throughout the film. That's all this really was. Um, like I'm, it was I'm a Warner for, Brothers ad. It was a one and a half hour right, ad yeah. for Warner Brothers. Right. It, it was just it was just dumb. Um, I liked how like you can never really see LeBron's face speaking in le- except for like three frames just because he could Unless he's speaking get- about China. Am I right, Len? So true. So true. Um, but they didn't show LeBron giving his lines because he was such a bad actor. I don't um, know if that's true because I, think uh, that's LeBron- what I read. okay. I'm not the LeBron Stan. I was when he was in Cleveland, 
But I think for an athlete, he's been a pretty good actor. If you saw Trainwreck, the Amy Schumer movie, I thought he was actually pretty funny in that. I, I, I don't know. I mean, he, he was be- certainly better in, the, in that than he was in Space Jam New Legacy. Well, you but... also have to understand, he isn't an actor. Well, I know, yeah, for I sure. I think but... he does an admirable job. I mean, if you go back and watch the original Space Jam, Michael Jordan doesn't exactly light it up as an actor either. And by the way, going yeah. back and watching the original Space Jam without your nostalgic glass on, it's, it's not bad. a very good movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. We only like Space Jam because we grew up on it. Like, it's mm-hmm. it, it's fun to like talk I mean, to it's where, like... cartoons playing basketball. What's not right. to like? It's Bill Murray. What's not to like? It's Bill you know, it's Murray. it's fun. That's all it really has going for it. Mm-hmm. But Space Jam: New Legacy tarnishes the legacy of Space Jam. I don't think it tarnishes it. I, well, I it, don't it wasn't think that good of a legacy anything. to begin with. Yeah, it was I, I just saw an opening okay. for some wordplay and went for it. it yeah, it's no, not that's good, good of a legacy to begin with. So that's um, that's and, probably my worst of 2021. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matrix. Uh, no spoilers uh, on the new Matrix, please. I haven't seen it yet. Well, if you don't want spoilers on the new Matrix, the new Matrix spoils. The matrix there that, you that, go that okay that good. there we go um it just is dumb it's sloppy it retcons things that didn't need to be retconned you know the, the story ended just it's very clearly just you know they want more money so just stop just i don't know i i, I think this was just a cynical ploy to make more money um mm-hmm. reminiscence although back to the matrix real quick keanu did donate 70 percent of his proceeds to cancer research so big ups to keanu um, he's by all accounts a very good person from every fantastic. story i've heard i've never heard a negative thing about the guy he's fantastic it's been um, nice to see him have a little bit of a renaissance in the last five years really starting with john wick maybe next right. week or a week later we'll do like a keanu reeves episode oh that'd, that'd be fun yeah mm-hmm. um reminiscence with hugh jackman um you know it was an interesting premise um i had really high hopes for that movie um it just didn't deliver on any of them whatsoever Gotcha. And so before we move on to our nostalgia review, our throwback review, I forgot to mention what I have been watching at the beginning of the show. Uh, I watched, I saw Sean Baker's Red Rocket on Tuesday. I enjoyed it. I think Simon Rex take a bow, really an outstanding performance from him. Someone who really isn't known as a serious actor. I thought he was really good. Uh, Really heartfelt, really gutsy performance by him. I watched David Lowry's A Ghost Story. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that film. I like that film. I admired it. I don't know if I'd say I liked it. I thought it was a really interesting way of dealing with some pretty weighty themes such as death and how life goes on after we're gone. It didn't really seem like a movie to me, almost more like internet content, if you understand what I mean, for the way that, you know, you got 10 minutes just staring at a guy in a white sheet without any talking. But I I admired the film and I really like David Lowry, as you guys know, The Green Knight, one of my favorite movies of the year. And I'm also a really big fan of The Old Man and the Gun, which is Robert Redford's swan song. Uh, Very, very big fan of that. And then I watched the first episode of Peacemaker on HBO. Have you guys seen that yet? I've seen it advertised everywhere. What are your thoughts? So I thought the first episode was good. It is directed by James Gunn, who of course did the Suicide Squad, the new, the new Suicide Squad movie. Is he directing the whole series or is it just the first I think couple? he did the first couple. And then I also want to say, I think I've reached the point with John Cena where I'm ready to admit he's a pretty good actor. Like he's a pretty, yeah, yeah, he's got yeah. some pretty good comedic chops. So I enjoyed Peacemaker episode one. So we write a hop into our throwback review. Let's do it. Let's so do it, today our throwback review continuing the theme of kind of neo-westerns is No Country for Old Men, the 2007 Best Picture winner directed by the Coen brothers. For anyone who doesn't know about 
No Country, you're really missing out. It's a fantastic film, as we'll get into. But the basic premise is you have uh, Llewellyn Moss, played by Josh Rowland, finds a drug deal gone wrong and a case of money, and he is then pursued by a number of people throughout the Western scape for that money. Most notably is Anton Chigurh, played by Javier Bardem. And it ends in chaos, I guess is the best way to put it. Lenny, what are your thoughts on the movie? Well, real quick, because I, I do have a lot of thoughts on it. Um, did, you guys, did you guys know Harvey uh, Bardem was in Dune? Yeah. Yes. I didn't know that until like really recently. He just, again, phenomenal actor who just disappears into the role. But He's anyways, the one who spits on the desk. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I didn't yeah. know that was him until very recently. This, wow. Um, okay, so he's uh, you know, still Garden Dune. I believe. Yeah, I think yeah. he'll he'll be more heavily featured in the next one, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the the second part of Dune it features him a lot more, but that's you know I could go on for hours about Dune, but I digress. A little verbal meme. I bought the book Dune uh, over to read over break. I've not opened it once, but I keep uh, it on my coffee table so when people come over, they think I'm smarter. So a little verbal meme for you, uh, The Office, when someone asked Michael about the book and he says, read it, I own it. But no, I have not read it. That's me. <laughs> it's um, nice. That tends to be the case with Dune. Everyone buys the book, but doesn't read it for like years. Uh, there's a great audiobook version. I uh, highly recommend it. Um, so uh, No Country for Old Men. You know, the Coen bro- brothers have a really good knack for making heartfelt Westerns. Uh, True Grit from 2010 is one of my favorite films. Uh, it's a remake of the classic Western. Um, and Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, you know, isn't explicitly a Western, but spiritually it has a lot of overlapping elements with most Western films. Um, there's a lot going on in No Country. Um, uh, unfortunately, the plot kind of aged really, really well, especially with, you know, drug deals along the southern and western border and, you know, heroin flooding the country. It's really unfortunate. Um, but you know, I really kind of appreciate that. It, it tells a true story. Um, it, it's it's realistic. Um, though it's based off the, it's an adaptation of Cormac McCarthy's novel. Um, McCar- McCarthy also wrote The Road, which is probably his most other famous work. And Correct Blood me if Meridian, I'm wrong though, I think. but Cormac McCarthy basically wrote uh, No Country as a screenplay. Right. Um, I don't know exactly what was going on with that. Uh, he might've wanted to make it a movie originally, but he he's said that it was written in a screenplay form. I'm not entirely sure what's going on with that, but the fact that he doesn't indent at all is kind of fascinating. Um, no, I think you could take the narrative of no country uh, for old men and apply it to almost any other setting in contemporary America. The story is just very, you can graft it onto almost anything going on right now. Unfortunately, there isn't a whole lot of, you know, commentary in it. Uh, like socioeconomic, it doesn't really have a specific message or an agenda it's peddling. It just gives a really raw insight to greed, uh, to human error. Um, yeah, you know, I highly recommend this movie. It's one of my favorites, uh, definitely in my top 20. What about you, Ezra? Or do you want me to go ahead? No, I'll, I'll go. So this was actually my first time watching No Country for Old Men. Really? I don't know why I hadn't seen it before. I'm a huge Cone Brother fan. I love everything I've seen them do except for Intolerable Cruelty. Um, But, uh, you know, like Lenny said, they're great at these kind of uh, Western, straight Westerns or neo-Westerns. Like he said, True Grit has to be one of my favorite movies they've ever made. On Netflix, they have The Bow to Buster Scrug, which is a great collection. 
And uh, I, even if you go back to the 90s or maybe even late 80s, they had a movie called Raising Arizona, which is also could be considered a neo-Western. You know, um, many are saying that uh, The Big Lebowski is Western. I have heard that, actually. I think because, well, I think people like it because of Sam Elliott's narration and all this yeah. stuff. But anyway, getting back to No Country for Old Men, this was a great film. Well, you also have um, Blood I, Simple, by the way, one of their first movies, which isn't yeah. technically a Western, but has some elements of a Western. Right, right. Just well, a lot of basically everything the, they do is spiritually Western. Mm-hmm. I mean, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou is an adaptation of the Odyssey, but it's got some right. Western elements too. Right, right. Well, I think their their real strength are these kind of crime movies. I mean, speaking of Fargo, Renegade, you know, and whatnot, and uh, Blood Simple, and. Um, even uh, some of their other films, it involves like crime elements, which I think- after reading. Exactly. Um, this fo- uh, film has great performances. I, having seen it for the first time, it uh, reminds me a lot of some Taylor Sheridan films. Like I can compare it to like Hell or High Water, I think is a good comparison, mm-hmm. which is very favorable because I really love Hell or High Water. It also reminded me a little bit not necessarily but a little bit of Sicario which yep. is another and I was about Sheridan. to point out Sicario for me is top 20 movie of all time I love Sicario yep. also Taylor and then you've got I hate to hijack the conversation Wind River another Taylor Sheridan movie right so, which yeah. is another fantastic film mm-hmm. that I could see elements in this because that's another one that it's about crime in the west these poor socioeconomic statuses changing landscapes you know these more hearty themes that are brought with real world precision um yeah this was a great film i completely understand why it won best picture um very well deserved even though it was up against great films like there will be blood another yeah um, western and yeah right uh, that i feel like it, i mean it, it was nominated but i feel like it's kind of underrated nowadays i don't i, I think, think I with think the recent emphasis it. on paul thomas anderson because he's had a new movie that just came out i wouldn't say it's underrated i think people appreciate it for what it is yeah but yeah, so yeah, to wrap up, I love this film. It definitely jumped right into my maybe top 20 of all time. And I'm definitely going to see it again soon because I tr- enjoyed it tremendously. Yeah, I mean, I can't add a ton that you guys haven't already said. I love this movie. Uh, I think it does have some statements. I think it talks about fate, kind of the changing of the times. I know Sheriff Bell kind of yearns for the past where there was more order and less violence. Uh, which is really what the statement no country for old men means because in the beginning of the film he said back in the day the old men didn't even have to carry a gun when they were sheriffs and now you know there's no country for old men Uh, there's violence uh, which is a lot more prevalent I also love how the the Coen brothers inject kind of their trademark dark humor into this movie one scene that comes to mind is when Anton Chigurh is at the little western general store yeah that's a great scene and then I would also say that Javier Bardem as Anton Chigurh is a top five villain of all time. I agree. I would think that's accurate. I mean, um, he's he's terrifying in this movie. And all he does, he carries that like... That stun gun? That stu- it's not a stun gun. It's, well, no, like, and, and it's, it's used to... Um, I think it's used know, to kill euthanize, cows. Yeah, it's used to euthanize cattle. But in the book, it's called the stun gun. Okay. It's, it's an air gun. So right. it, it shoots a bolt out yeah. of the end. And it's yeah. terrifying. Yeah, he carries it with, and he has that shotgun with the huge silencer on it, which is also scary. It looks weird. It freaks you out. Mm-hmm. It's very phallic. I mean, he's a he's a, a terrifying character in this movie, and I believe he won an Oscar 
for this best supporting actor Javier Bardem did for this role. So that's good to see. So overall, any final thoughts on No Country? Obviously, it's a very well-respected movie. Uh, to me, I think another thing you have, great performances all across the board. Uh, Josh Brolin as Llewellyn Moss, Javier Bardem, as we talked about, Tommy Lee Jones as Sheriff Ed Tom Bell. Uh, also an underrated performance, you've got Woody Harrelson here as a, yeah. a supporting cast. He's really only in the movie for about 10 minutes or so, right. but he's great in those 10 minutes. What was your guys? Obviously, for me, it's Bardem. Was he your standout performance in this as well? Uh, yeah, uh, Bardem, I think, is amazing. But it's hard to pick a true standout because, like, Josh Brolin really surprised me in this role. I completely bought him as Llewellyn Moss. I completely understood his motivation, who he was. He ended up being a much smarter character than I took him for because initially you think he's just an idiot. But the way he at least attempts to stay ahead of those chasing him, I think really speaks to the character. And it all felt like it fit with his character. Um, I think that also just speaks to the writing uh, is that everything's very well written. So the actors are really able to inhibit their roles. But yeah, so um, I do agree, though, that Javier Bardem is uh, incredible in this film. And he stands on the shoulders of giants in this. Mm -hmm. You know, something interesting about this movie is that your three main characters, uh, Llewellyn Moss, Ed Tom Bell, and Anton Chigurh, never on the screen at the same time. It's a very good point. I didn't even think about that, but that that's very that, fascinating. That kind of imparts a sense of urgency in the story, I think. You know, we're constantly used to seeing all these big names in film on screen together. That's part of what makes it so fascinating to see all these movie stars together. They're starring in the same film, put them in the same room. But the fact that you never see them all necessarily together really just adds the sense of, holy crap, just motion, movement forward. Mm -hmm. And the only person who even talks to them is Carla Jean, Llewellyn's wife. Right. I believe. Right. Um, you, know, you asked about uh, standout roles, and Bardem is my favorite probably. But, mm -hmm. you know, everyone just murdered this movie. is absolutely yeah. fantastic. It's, it's hard to just nail down one person above all who had a better performance. You know, Bardem is my favorite, but that's because it's the first role I ever saw him in, so. Yeah. Do you guys think Many that- career highs in this film. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of clues actually in this film that Anton Sugar does not kill Carla Jean at the end. Do you guys think he does? I think so, but it is definitely left ambiguous. Um. I think the biggest hint might be is when he leaves the house, he checks the soles of his shoes to make sure he hasn't gotten blood on them. Mm -hmm. That's my interpretation of that scene. Yeah, and but he hates to get blood on him because when he kills that guy in the motel, he makes sure the shower curtain is closed so he doesn't get blood on him. Right. Um, but yeah, it's it's. I think it works to the film's advantage that it is purposely left ambiguous mm -hmm. because uh, throughout they're trying to display that even though Anton Chigurh is a sociopath. He's insane. He does live by a certain code. And so when she attempts to, you know, break his, what he sees as a fair chance with the coin flip, it's, it would, we don't know how he would react to that because that breaks the pattern that he's used to and goes in the face of his code. Mm -hmm. So what would you guys rank this movie? For me, this is, this is one of the very few five-stick movies for me. I think last week we kind of talked about what makes a perfect film. And I think this is really a great example. I think 
Uh, visually, it's gorgeous to look kind of at the gritty West. I believe this takes place in Texas. Uh, I think you've got standout. Texas, Arizona. What? I'm pretty sure it's Texas. Texas. You've got standout performances anchored by Javier Bardem becoming the first Spanish actor to win an Academy Award. And I think well-deservedly so. I think he's one of the top five villains of all time as Anton Chigurh. You've got a legend like Tommy Lee Jones. You've got a great performance by Kelly McDonald and Josh Brolin. And then you've got uh, Woody Harrelson as well as Carson Wells in a more tertiary role. But I think he adds a lot to the film. So for me, this is a five-stick movie. I'm a big Coen Brothers guy. I think I've seen pretty much all but one or two of their movies, of their mainstream movies. I just watched Barton Fink a few weeks ago. So I, I think there's really nothing you could find wrong with this movie. So for me, this is a five-stick movie. And we talked about last week what makes a five-stick movie. I do want to read a comment from one of our listeners. Shout out Josh Morville in Columbus. He's a fan of the pod. He messaged that some of his five-stick movies include Shawshank Redemption, Inception, The Godfather, The Departed, Inception, Schindler's okay. List, and Gladiator. While I wouldn't necessarily agree with all those, I appreciate the interaction, and I would definitely agree with some of them. What about you guys? Um, you know, I I would definitely agree this is a five-stick film. Um, like Ezra mentioned a little earlier, it's when something is more artful and leaves you feeling moved, changed almost, it, it adds to your world view in a sense. And I think this is definitely a film that you leave the theater feeling different about the world around you. Yes, yeah, so for me, this is a four and a half stick. Um, but uh, we talked about a five stick movie and I do wanna add to that is for me, I don't think I've ever given a movie five sticks off after the first viewing. All my movies that are five stick viewing or five stick films are ones that I have watched over and over again because they hit me like that. So who's to say that No Country for Old Men won't for me become a five stick movie after I watch it one or two more times? But for now, it's a four and a half. That's you're, fair. You're, dis, you're a discerning critic, and I respect that. I applaud it. I think I've given 14 movies five sticks. So for me, this that makes this a top 14 movie of me for all time. So I I'm probably sure, go on Letterboxd at some point and start doing that. Yeah, so I'm sure the Coen brothers would be really thrilled to know that this is a top 14 movie for me. You know, maybe, um, maybe they'll be on our show at some point. Who knows? Yeah, Coen brothers, stop by. Or feel free to sponsor us. Or spot, yeah. Extra Butter, sponsored by Joel and Ethan Cohen. Maybe. And Francis. And Francis, Francis McDormand. Also stop by the pod. We'd love to interview you. Uh, so for our five... So say our next segment, we're going to do top three icy flavors. I know, Lenny, this is something you wanted to do uh, because it's very cold out. I know it is. I'm up north here in Cleveland. You guys are down south. So I don't even know. Was it like 70 and sunny down there on your side of 71? Uh, it's probably more like 30, high 30s, low 40s. I haven't gone outside yet today. It, it may snow to, tonight. There's Ooh. supposed to be a big winter storm coming. So you guys also have the, the Bengals there today. So enjoy that. So top three icy flavors. Lenny, why don't you go ahead and go first? So, yeah, uh, you know, more than just being cold outside, ices are very iconic. They're a very iconic part of the movies. You know, you go to a movie theater. What do you see? You see an icy branded slushy machine. You go to 7-Eleven, you just see slushies. But ices, one of the few places. Well, 7-Eleven, actually... I think, is the big gulp. gulp. Well, the big gulp's like their, their fountain drink, I think. Oh, is it? I'm pretty sure. I think it's like either a Slurpee or a slushy. It's it's not icy branded icy though. Gotcha. So um, Lenny, what are your top three? Top three flavors. Uh, so I'm a big fan of cola. Um, Coca-Cola icy is definitely supreme for me. Um, Spend you know, so much money on uh, 
Coca-Cola, you're going to go Broca-Cola. Very true, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but yeah, definitely Coke is my, top, is my top icy, uh, followed by White Cherry. White Cherry, trying to whitewash history. Just kidding. I actually also like White Cherry. So. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, White Cherry, is, it's kind of hard to find. You can get it at AMC, as far as I know, but I don't see it at Cinemark or... Um, AMC, yeah. sponsor the pot. Yes, please. That'd be, that'd be very nice of you, AMC. Please help us. Um, but you don't see White Cherry at like most franchise movie theaters. Occasionally, you'll see it at like a boutique one, but typically you only have red and blue flavoring, which brings me to my third favorite, Red Cherry. Um, red Cherry is good because it's a classic, and you can also get like a nice cherry swirl with the Coca-Cola. Yeah, I think mixing all of them is usually the way to go but you can't mix i mean mixing like two to three so for me my top two are red cherry and blue raspberry and they both pair very well with my number three which is coca-cola i think there's nothing better maybe than mixing a cherry and a coke to make cherry coke uh my all-time underrated is going to be your fanta orange creamsicle i'm a big fan of orange vanilla flavored items and then my worst very is going to be birthday cake uh in a little verbal meme paying homage to a friend of the show, Jeff Goldblum, your scientists were so concerned with whether they could, they never <laughs> asked whether they should. Uh, birthday cake, Lenny, you're a pretty ha- big hater of birthday cake flavor, right? I have never had a birthday cake flavored item other than birthday cake that was good. So like, I, birthday, birthday cake Oreos are an abomination. I hate no, them. No, I actually think they're pretty good. I love birthday cake ice cream too. So just it, it's too much too many things that you can't it's like one good thing plus another good thing isn't a super good thing it's just too much anyway uh they do not make for a good icy so for me cherry blue raspberry coke underrated is going to be your fanta orange creams cold worst is birthday cake lenny did you say what you think your worst flavor is um well i'm deeply offended that birthday cake ices exist um my least favorite was probably be Honestly, Mountain Dew Icy. Um, I think I've had only one of them, and it was violently sweet. So not not a big fan. I think all Icy's are violently sweet. They're just water and sugar. Well, yeah, but they're violently sweet in endearing ways. Mountain Dew is just extremely sweet in the first place, which is a bit much for me. And then you put it in Icy form, and it's just violently sweet. It's just not, it's not endearing. It's not redeemable. Ezra, you've been pretty quiet uh, today. What are your favorite? flavors well you know i'm probably the most health conscious of the three of us and so i tend to stay away from you know sugary drinks like that so i can say with confidence i haven't had an ice in at least 15 years i used to get them at the zoo cincinnati zoo shout out please sponsor us um but other this than podcast that, I haven't... brought to you by harambe r.i.p um maybe if i had to really dig into my brain to think Blueberry is that a flavor? I feel like I really blue like raspberry blueberry. maybe. This blueberry blue raspberry. Um, yeah. So top one. I don't have a top three. I have a top one. That's the one I recommend. Um, also, you know, we were talking about. I can't remember if it was on this podcast or off air, but Lenny was correct that Seven Eleven owns Speedway. I just looked it up on Wikipedia, and Marathon sold Speedway to Seven Eleven uh, in twenty twenty one. So that's deeply upsetting. I hate that. Okay. So that pretty much wraps up everything we wanted to talk about today. I know that we have some time off for Martin Luther King Day. You guys have anything you want to plan on watching? I know the Moon Knight trailer, which we're all excited for, drops 
I think Monday or Sunday during an NFL playoff game, you guys excited for Moon Knight? You know, I'm a little apprehensive about Moon Knight uh, just because Moon Knight, uh, the character is one of the few explicitly Jewish characters in comics. As a Jewish guy, I follow this kind of stuff. And they've cast Oscar Isaac, and there's some reports that they may make his Latino identity at the forefront and thus making his Catholicism a central part of it. So I'm a little worried because uh, in Marvel, they already have several Jewish characters that are not Jewish in the Marvel universe, like Wanda from WandaVision. Um, So I hope, you know, we get a character of our own. Considering so many creators and comic book artists are Jewish, it would be nice to have an explicitly Jewish character on the screen. Lenny, you going to watch anything this week? I want to track down the animated feature uh, by DC that is Batman meets the Ninja Turtles. Um, I'm not sure if it's versus or meets or and, but somewhere on the screen, an animated Batman is broing out with animated turtles. Sounds good. And for me, I'm not sure what I'll have a chance to watch. I know the King of Comedy is now streaming on Hulu. That's been on my watch list for quite some time. So hopefully I'll have a chance to watch that. Uh, I think that pretty much does it for everything we had today. So uh, I want to thank everyone for listening. Remember, give us a follow on Twitter at extra underscore butter pod. Lenny, do you know what our Facebook is yet? Our Facebook username is at extra butter pod, all one word, or just type an extra butter podcast in your search bar and you'll find us. Sounds good. So for Lenny and Ezra, I am Josh. And remember, always go for the extra butter. We'll see you all next week. That's where I long to be with my three good companions, just my rifle bow.